Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Real Christmas Story by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and our spiritual ears to see with the eyes of the Holy Spirit this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Revelation chapter 12. In regards to understanding the book of Revelation, chapter 12 is regarded to be, and I agree with those, is regarded to be the most important chapter in the entire apocalypse. Uh, The word apocalypse, by the way, doesn't speak about the end of the world. It simply means revelation. It simply means unveiling. And so this is the most important chapter in the entire apocalypse. We will ask the same questions we have asked every week. We will ask, what did John see? We will ask, what does that likely mean? And how does it apply to us? This is a great chapter. There are people sitting here today that need to hear what this chapter has to say. The truth that this chapter holds for us today is enormously important for a lot of people sitting in the room today. Uh, has anybody ever watched that movie, The Truman Show? 1998 Truman Show, Jim Carrey. Most of us have probably seen it. Uh, when it was first released, uh, many people said, you know, it's the, it's the message of our times. And, and Once you cut through all the garbage, uh, it's an interesting movie that kind of highlights a very powerful truth that Revelations is highlighting. Uh, the Truman Show is a movie about a man who from his birth, without him knowing, his whole life is, is videotaped. It's orchestrated by uh, camera crews. It's, he lives in this kind of dome that he thinks is his world. Uh, everybody in that dome is an actor. They play a part. And, and then, of course, he begins to become suspicious. And the movie ends with him uh, finally stepping out side of that dome and realising that his whole life has been on camera and what he knew or thought was ultimate reality, in fact he found when he stepped through the door that there was a far greater reality. And the Apostle John says in chapter 4, I saw a door open in heaven and when he steps through that door, in the same way that Truman realised, he realised that I always thought that this was ultimate reality, but then he stepped into another world and all of a sudden he realised the ultimate reality is outside of this world. And the book of Revelation is teaching us, showing us, unveiling to us some really important things. First thing is, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that holds a lamb with his hair flowing in the wind is not the real Jesus. Immediately we begin to see one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What we find out in chapter 5 is Jesus is not worthy because of anything that he has done. Jesus is worthy because of who he is. Before Jesus stepped onto planet Earth, he was worthy of all of our praise. He is glorious. When John steps through that door into heaven, he sees one seated on the throne. Amidst the chaos that is happening around him, he sees one seated upon the throne and one next to the throne. Last week, we, we worked through the seven seals, and if you keep reading the seven trumpets, and they speak of, uh, they speak of God's judgment on hardened humanity. And we begin to see a picture of a God that hasn't... Sometimes people separate the Old Testament God from the New Testament God. 
And sometimes people use language that says, well, Old Testament God was God without his meds. You know, it was kind of, it was kind of God, but the New Testament is this soft, fluffy God when God hasn't changed and his intolerance of sin has not changed. How we deal with sin has gloriously changed. And there's some really wonderful, powerful truth. Uh, what we find in chapters 1 to 11, what is unpacked there, let's, let's quickly walk through where we've been. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the book of Revelation. And when we move into the letters to the seven churches, we find that the, largely the message is that there is both internal and external pressure on the church to compromise. Interestingly enough, what a message for us, because that hasn't changed in almost 2,000 years. Uh, the, the first church faced two major threats to the faith of the believers, which hasn't changed, by the way. Uh, threat external, persecution and trials. Uh, threat internal, false teaching. And we need to be careful. It doesn't matter what part of Scripture we open. Uh, sometimes, for example, maybe Scripture... It doesn't, by the way, but maybe Scripture's describing an animal that has two ears, four legs and a tail, and immediately people go, cat! When the immediate context and the whole message of Scripture is telling us this is definitely a dog. And we, we need to be careful. And, and the reason is simple. Um, when we get to our Exodus series, um, and I'm going to give you some examples in a moment, but when we get to our Exodus series, we're going to read a chapter about the golden calf. And what happens at the golden calf is Moses is up the mountain having a siesta with God and just having a great time. For f- Who would like to be in the presence of God like that for 40 days and 40 nights? Well, you can for an eternity if you make the right choices here. But uh, yeah, that's a long time, eternity, isn't it? Yeah. Some say, well, I've been on earth for an eternity, but not quite. Um, and what we find is that um, while he's up there, the people say this... Isn't it interesting how the language of the Bible hasn't really changed in many, many years? We still hear this today. They come to the leader, the priest, and say, make for us a God. And then the leader says, oh, I could get myself into a lot of trouble today. Then the leader says, give me your gold. Oh, I could get into a lot of trouble. And all of a sudden we have a calf. And although Israel was known for their idolatry, what was the big thing about the golden calf? They were dancing around the golden calf, calling it Yahweh. That was the problem. The problem was we've fashioned for ourselves a God and we're calling him Yahweh. I mean, I'm reluctant to even try and pronounce that. There are Jewish people that would say, what do you think you're doing? But the reality is they were saying, this is our God that has delivered us up out of Egypt. There's the problem. (laughs) You have reduced God down to this. And we have teaching today that threatens the faith of believers and does the same thing. It might sound like if you have enough faith, you can just claim a new car. You can just... If you have enough faith, then your bank account will always be full. You'll always drive new cars. You'll have Omani suits. That's why I don't wear suits. But the reality is we have reduced God down to somebody we think we can control. Revelations unpacks we're not in control. Today is part one. Next week is part two. We're going to do chapter 13 next week because it's really important. But we are going to see we are not the ones in control. We are going to see today that the enemy... Now, you might... A little bit of a disclaimer. I need to probably... For those that have been tracking with us for five years, you might realise, you know, Pastor, you never preach on the enemy. 
You know, you, re- you rarely ever preach on, uh, on, on evil and wickedness, and I'll tell you why. He is so insignificant that I'm not going to waste my time up here preaching about him. If you spend time with me in a prayer meeting, you're going to realise that I don't bind and loose anything. You're going to realise that I don't speak to him because I, have, I haven't got enough time in my prayer life to worry about talking to him. And what you're going to learn by the time we finish today is you don't need to bind the enemy and you don't need to lose anything. It's already been done. This is why I love Christianity. Religion says is spelt D-O. Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E. Love it. For many of us today, we will associate Christmas. I want to introduce you to the real Christmas story and... Uh, This morning we would associate Christmas with tinsel and trees and for those that are thinking this is a cue for you to put the Christmas tree up, (laughs) we haven't even had Easter yet so calm down, but uh, uh, we think of Christmas trees and tinsel and presents and family and barbecues and we should celebrate and we should give at Christmas time and do all those things. Today I'd like to do, uh, invite you to step behind the scenes and have a look at what Christmas was like from John's perspective from the other side. What we read in the Gospels, we read a baby. We read a baby in a manger. We read the Son of God coming to earth. And what John sees is something very glorious, but something very different to that. It's kind of like, today I hope we begin to step more and more beyond the tinted glass. Have you ever, have you ever stood on the street outside and... and uh, you're trying to look at somebody inside a car with tinted glass and you can kind of make them out picking their nose. Everybody picks their nose in their car. No, I'm only joking. But you can, uh, but, uh, you know, you can, maybe you can make out shapes. Maybe you can distinguish uh, what's going on inside. But the reality is you can't see clearly. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He says, we look through a glass dimly. I want you to know that while we're here on earth, every one of us, Every scholar, every theologian, you can spend 50 years in Bible college if you like, but you will still look through a glass dimly. What John has done is stepped on the other side of the tinted glass. You ever notice how, you you ever been in an office where you're on the other side of the tinted glass and everybody's on the outside and they're kind of checking themselves out in the, you know, because they don't think anyone's on the other side? And you're, and you're ringing the police because there's a weirdo on the other side of What is this weirdo doing? John stepped on the other side and what he saw with greater clarity, I believe, is glorious and profound. Let us work our way through this this morning. Before we go any further, a couple of disclaimers that I need to lay out there. If, if your theology on the enemy is that he is autonomous and that he runs around this planet doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, that will be squashed for you today. I want you to know that he's not autonomous. I want you to know that he doesn't have divinity. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't see everything. There's only one that has that. And something enormously changed at the Christmas story, the complete Christmas story. Let's keep reading. Verse 12 Chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman. Well, we'll unpack who the woman is in a moment. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains 
in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. We don't need to be theologians to begin to understand who the dragon might be and who the woman might be that is pregnant. A little bit more in a moment. With seven heads, ten horns, and his heads on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And what we read in the Gospels uh, is uh, of a little baby that was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. What we read in the Gospels, what we can see from this side of the tinted glass, very true, very wonderful, very profound in all that it teaches us. But what, but what we see is a, is a young toddler who is pursued. We, we, we see a King Herod who... Uh, uh, being threatened and insecure about his throne because of a king that was born would pursue uh, the saviour until him and his parents flew, fled into Egypt for asylum. What we read is King Herod trying to wipe out the King Jesus. What John saw was a beast standing before the woman wanting to devour. And what we begin to see is often we have a misconception that uh, everything that happens on earth influences and controls what happens in the heavenlies. But what John wants us to know is everything you're seeing here on earth is more often influenced by the heavenlies. The woman here, who is the woman? We need to answer a few questions. Uh, And the woman is not Mary. This is actually not an individual woman. It is a, it is symbolic. It can't even be Israel. It can't be the physical nation of Israel because uh, we see the woman both pre-giving birth and we will later on in the chapter see that the woman has other offspring after the death of Christ. So it can't just be the people of Israel, but whoever this woman is, she is pre-Christ and she is post-Christ. And this woman is none other than the faithful uh, remnant, the faithful community of God's people. Pregnant. It's interesting that when God decided the, the physical lineage for Christ... Uh, genealogies were enormously important in the first century, by the way, but the physical lineage of Christ, if we think this is all physical for a moment, uh, has King David, an adulterous murderer in it, but that was the line of our Messiah. It's all about the faithful remnant. Rahab, a prostitute, is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's not about your heritage so much, it's not about who your mum and dad was, but how your heart is positioned before God. The woman is none other than the faithful community. Let's keep reading on. We'll, we'll ask ourselves the question, how does this apply to us? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to have a look. I'm going to use the analogy of a, for a moment, of a football field. If you can imagine, life is like a a game of football. What John is telling us here is what he saw when he got caught up at the coach's box for a moment. And he's telling us the moment when he saw the greatest player ever enter the field. When the coach stepped out of the coach's box and walked onto the field, this is 
She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child, now we're talking the ascension of Christ, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Something very profound as we're looking at this, when what we read in the Gospels, I, I have found this to be profound. The Garden of Gethsemane for me is enormous because when we look at the book of Revelation and begin to understand what this meant, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to those that had come to seize him, now is your hour. I want you to know that the enemy operates according to divinely appointed time frames. He doesn't set his own rules here. But what is so glorious about that is Jesus knowing exactly what it meant when he said that, he is handing himself over, saying for a time and period, I'm yours to do with as you please. And have a look at what they did to him on the cross. Have a look at what that meant when he said that. The enemy was seeking to devour him. And for those that can remember the old Carmen song, Champion, can anybody ever remember that song? You're showing your age if you raise your hand, so just keep it. Keep it down. I'll just raise my hand for you. But what a great song. Remember the champion song, When They Thought He Was Defeated. Something very glorious happened. The enemy thought he had won at the cross. But the, what appeared on an earthly scene, see how things aren't always as they seem here? What in our eyes and from an earthly perspective uh, looked like an utter defeat. Even his disciples are thinking defeat. It was the most ultimate victory. We are now going to read in a moment language of what happened immediately after that. But the next verse, uh, there's a couple of words we need to hang on to as we're working our way to the end. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place. Uh, Highlight the word place. We're going to come back to that word uh, when we draw to a close. She had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished. Highlight that word nourished because we're going to come back to that one as well for 1260 days. 1260 days, you will also read through chapters 12 and 13, you're going to read 1260 days, you're going to read 42 months, you're going to read time, time and half a time, and you're going to read three and a half years. They're all the same time period if you do the math. Uh, This is for going deeper in end times, but can I just digress for a moment to help you when we are viewing the book of Revelation. Uh, There are four ways that people view the book of Revelation, mostly anyway. Uh, There is the historist view, which looks at everything written in the book of Revelation as already accomplished. Then there is the futurist view, which says everything in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 onwards is all going to transpire in the future. Then there is the preterist view, which says all of the prophecies of Revelation we can see fulfilled in the immediate context of a generation surrounding Christ. Then there is the spiritualist view, which is a little bit wacky. But the first three uh, agree on the symbolism and agree on the message and agree on just about everything in the book of Revelation except for timing. Timing's not important right now. Days are not important right now. What's important is the wonderful message that is unpacked for us throughout these chapters. When we get to our Exodus series, I'm plugging that a fair bit lately, 
But when we get to the Exodus series, we'll unpack this more. But what did the wilderness mean for the people of Israel? It's interesting. They make their way out into the wilderness and the wilderness represented danger. It represented hostility. It represented barrenness. But what it represented for Israel, and they had feasts to celebrate this, what it represented for them was God's divine presence amidst all of the hostility, amidst all of the danger, God's divine presence, God's divine providence, how God had kept them through all of that. I would go as far as to say, before we get to the end, that we are all in a wilderness right now. We live in a very hostile world. People don't like you. If you stand up for Jesus Christ, people don't like you. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Sorry if you came for a fluffy message this morning. That's, that's... But if you align yourself with Christ, if you stand for truth today, you're intolerant. If you stand for Jesus, you are hated and reviled and persecuted. The world does not like you. This is a hostile world. It is dangerous. If you're a Christian in Iran right now, that will get you killed and celebrated. No one's, no one's, you're not gonna, no one's gonna get charged with murder in Iran if they murder you right now. It's dangerous to be a Christian in some parts of the globe. We are so blessed here. So blessed. More about the place prepared. That's very glorious when we get there. More about the place prepared and more, more about nourishment in a moment. Let's step into what, uh, I, I love this next set of verses. There's people here that need to hear this. Now, war arose in heaven. This is now what John's seeing. John is seeing what is happening at the time of the cross, at the time of the resurrection, at the time of the ascension. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. When you look at literature throughout, just as a FYI, when you look through literature, uh, we always see Michael fighting for the people of God. Daniel, etc. Uh, um, the archangel Michael was fighting over Moses' body, which they mentioned. So... Interestingly enough, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. We're going to definitely get the identity of the dragon in a moment. The dragon and his angels fought back, verse 8, but he was defeated. If you're sitting here this morning, that word was is a very powerful and very profound word. He was defeated. If any part of your end times theology, if any way that you read the book of Revelation means that Jesus has to come back and somehow get the ultimate victory over the enemy, he doesn't. He's already got it. He's coming back to enforce it. He's coming back to deliver the consequences to the dragon. What a day to be in church. What what if this was your first day today? These guys believe in dragons. (laughs) Kind of. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. That's That's a really profound verse. What does that mean, there was no place for them in heaven? What was he doing up there in the first place? We're going to cover that in just a moment. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. So now we know who he is. And Job 1 unpacks something for us. For those that read, Job is poetry language, but only from chapter after chapter 2. First two 
uh, are very descriptive. And what happens in the first uh, instance of Job, we read that the enemy comes into the courts of heaven as was his custom, depending on your translation. It was custom. What's he doing up there? He would come before God. He had a platform before God in the heavenlies. This is pre-Christ to accuse the people of God. He would come in to accuse them. What accusation does he bring? He brings an accusation against Job and says, he only loves you, he only follows you because you bless him and you've got this hedge of protection around him. Take those away and let's see what happens. And the rest is history. What happened after the triumph of Christ is the enemy and all of his angels lost that position in heaven. There is nobody right now standing in heaven to accuse you. That is enormously good news this morning. A little bit of a snapshot. When I was a young teenager, God bless my foster mother for putting up with me, by the way, but when I was a teenager, I I was almost on a first-name basis with one of the judges in Launceston. Two reasons for that. Launceston's not very big. And second one, I was there a lot. But... But... I, I, I had been in before this judge a few times and he was always pretty lenient and he always seemed to be pretty kind to me and I kind of knew how it was going to take place and how everything was going to go down and, and, and so I kind of walked into the courtroom and when I got up there, somebody else was there. The public prosecutor. And she got up. I'm sure she's a lovely lady. But she got up and she attacked me. And she, she made a very strong case why I should be punished very severely. By the time she finished her rant, I was like, who invited you? <laughs> Everything she said, by the way, was correct. And that was the role of the enemy in heaven, that he could stand there and accuse you. He could bring up your record and he could say to God, look at this record, look at what they do. There's no, when you enter the courtroom of heaven now, there's no public prosecutor. There's just the defence team. John says in his epistle that we all have an advocate before the throne. Wow, we have somebody. When you get up there, when you make a mistake, because we all do, right? Our, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Sin runs deep, but grace, God's grace runs even deeper. We're all... We're all soaked in human flesh to a large degree. Cat lovers more than the rest of us, but we're all soaked in human flesh to some degree. But the reality is that in Christ, all the accusation is gone. There is nobody to bring a charge against you. And every time, every time you come in repentance before the throne, Jesus is there speaking to the Father going, I died for him. Next week, uh, when we do chapter 13, we're going to talk about beasts and all that sort of stuff. Real interesting week. However, none of that is the most important verse in there. The most profound verse in chapter 13 is when we read that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Percolate on that over the week. See you next week. It's, I'm not going to do a Calvinist speech for those that are wondering. Uh, that's, a, that's a really divine verse. But the glorious thing is that there is no accuser in heaven. The sad thing is that when so often before God, we are our own public prosecutor. We're our own worst enemies. We tell God how worthless we are. We tell God how, how we've made that same mistake 50 times and, and, and all of these sorts of things. And Jesus is flicking through our record going, I can't find it. 
I can't find the other 49. We are our own worst enemies. And I hope today, I hope today, I hope throughout the series of Revelation that you will see that the story of Christmas was the fact that you aren't worthless, you were so valuable that God gave up everything that he and heaven had to get you back. In fact, that verse that says your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, what we see is Christ saying to God, I'm going to get them. Powerful. What else do we learn about the enemy? We earn the the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He is the deceiver. And I hope to be able to help you today. One way that we can best overcome the enemy is to understand our enemy a little bit better. And that word deceiver is language that is very fond to me. Uh, I'm a fly fisherman, so deception is something that I not dabble in, I'm saturated in. Uh, I spend my fishing days deceiving fish. Believe it or not, a big fluffy fly full of feathers and foam about that big doesn't actually look like anything they're supposed to eat. It's counterfeit. It's a deception. The enemy would like you to think he has power, would like you to think that you don't have any choice but to keep going on in in those patterns of your life and being held back. He would like you to think that. And the reason why I don't preach so much on the enemy, the reason why I don't speak to him and so forth is because I have found that uh, that word deceiver there or deception means counterfeit. And uh, what they found, there is a task force in America that is tasked with uh, overcoming counterfeit currency. And what they have realised is that the technology the counterfeiters are using is so far advanced that they are forever playing catch-up. So their focus used to be we have to be so familiar with a fake when they switched their philosophy and says, no, 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 the way that you pick the counterfeit is by knowing intensely the real thing. And the way that you can stop being suckered in and eating that big bushy fly that doesn't look like anything is by getting to know the one. Holiness is less about what you subtract out of your life and more about who you allow to fill your life. God defined holiness by where he was. What did he say to Moses? Take off your sandals because where you are is holy ground. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's good news this morning. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Give God a clap this morning if that applies to you. Give God a clap. Who accuses them, he goes on to say, day and night before our God. He's been thrown down. He doesn't have his place anymore. Verse 11, and they have conquered him. I love this verse. Most of us know this verse. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not 
their lives. Let's unpack that verse for a moment. We're going to move really quick because time is short this morning. Verse 11, and they conquered them by the blood of the lamb. How can you overcome the accuser? By a life that is lived in trust and reliance upon the sacrifice that Christ made for you. It's about leaning into his blood. It's about standing. Every step you take towards God is on blood-stained stones, friends. The pathway past the curtain is a pathway we all walk on the blood of Christ. You don't have any access before God unless it's by the blood of Jesus. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony, uh, for the old Salvation Army nuts, we used to have, uh, that's me, because I don't think anybody else was here from the Salvation Army, but we used to sing a hymn, there is power in the blood. There is power in the blood. Amen. Before I start singing, and all the power goes out the window... You'll know when Jesus is about to return because I'll be singing and that'll be the only reason. Verse 11, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Who here would like to take ground? Who here would say to themselves today, I want to get back at the enemy? Is there anybody here that would like to? Well, we can get back at the enemy. He wants to get you, by the way. Uh, there There are parents in this room and he's got hold of your kids. He's seduced your kids. He's deceived your kids. Your kids who grew up in church, he's deceived them and led them away. There's parents in this room today that are in that place. Who would like to get some ground back? We get some ground back by the word of our testimony, by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been given, salvation is of God, yes, but we have been given two means by which we participate in the process of salvation. The first one is prayer. Start praying for those who aren't saved. The second one is proclamation. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a hope inside of you. Go and tell people about it. I have found, we all love Jesus, we're going to get to that in a moment, we all love Jesus, but I have found that we we just can't help talking about what it is that we love. Our sheds are filled sometimes with what we love. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Proclaiming the gospel is by voice, yes. By telling people, yes. But we proclaim the gospel by the lives that we live. For they love not their lives. For they love not their lives. I've been reading through 1 Kings and I just read the history of King Solomon. Here's a guy that started his race with God amazingly well. For those that know the story of King Solomon, I didn't pray for riches, I didn't pray that you kill all my enemies, I just prayed for wisdom. And God says, because you did that, I'm going to give you all the money, richest man, still today. Guy that owns Amazon, whatever his name is, he completely conquered this guy. He had all the riches and all the wealth, and he had peace on his borders. Started his race really well. We read of a Solomon that loved God, but after he was told not to intermarry, Marries all these wives. And what does he do? He loved his wives more. And they drew his heart away. The enemy wants you to love your life here. The more you love your life... I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy your life. I'm just saying we need to love him more. They loved not their (coughs) 
lives. Let's move this really quickly down through the last verses as we come to an end. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. For those that have read the book of Daniel, you'll know that language and that's for a Sunday night in the future. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. What's going on here? Uh, Very quickly, what we see is the enemy, knowing he's lost his place, pursues the woman, pursues their offspring. Good morning, you are part of that. You are part of the faithful community of God. The enemy wants your faith. The enemy wants to rob you of your faith and he will do whatever he has to do to get hold of it. The reference here to water like a flood or like a torrent is an intense period of time of attack on the church. That's a sermon for another day. But I love the language that we see here, the language that God, that they rose up on two wings like the eagle. Uh, In Exodus 19 verse 4, I love this language. God says to Israel, I brought you to myself on the wings of an eagle. If you're flying with wings of an eagle, you're not putting in a whole lot of effort to get there. My personal story, and I'm not going to go too deep into it, but my personal story is the story of a God who found me. Uh, My personal story is the story of a God who brought me to himself. my relationship with God, sometimes we get confused. C.H. Spurgeon says that often we, we think that we are preserved by our grip upon God when in actual fact it's his grip upon us. And what we read about here is an intense time of persecution in the church that hasn't actually stopped. Do you know the, the hostility towards the church? Uh, the enemy hates the church. The enemy, the enemy hates the church. He hates the hope you have. He hates something because you know that whole language about binding and loosing? That's representative language. That is Jesus coming to us and saying, here's all of my authority for you to enforce the gospel. Whatever you bind on earth, it's, it's, it's representative language. He hates you because you actually have more authority than he does. As I bring this to a conclusion today, what do we learn from this? We learn that we are all kind of in a wilderness. We are all, for want of a better term, we are in a place of hostility. We are in a place right now where the enemy wants to rob your faith by persecution or maybe internally by false teaching or whatever it is. He wants to, to, to rob our faith, but God has prepared a place. And I love this language because when we unpack this, uh, verse, five, uh, verse 6, for example, uh, when the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, that place there, the, the word in the Greek is synonymous with temple. Uh, the Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew language for the same word is sanctuary. No matter what happens on the outside, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in your family, no matter what's going on in your life, God has prepared a place for you. It's called the temple. He had a place then, And he has a place now. Jesus loves his church. I love the local church because I can see God's purpose in the local church. Uh, 
couple of things real quick. The, the Old Testament temple, when we do Exodus and we get into the tabernacle, you're going to love it. But the Old Testament temple basically was a place where heaven and earth would converge and meet. It was designed as a place where man and God would meet and God dwelt in that temple and amongst that temple and the whole attraction of that temple was the presence of God. A.W. Tozer spoke very haunting words back in the 1950s when he said, it is barely possible to get people to fill a room where the only attraction is God. In the Old Testament, that was the only reason people went to the temple, because there was a presence there. In the New Testament, uh, Peter says to us that we are all living stones fitted together, forming the temple. You are the temple, the church is is the temple. God has designed a place for you to be nourished, no matter the hostility, no matter the persecution that's going on outside, God has prepared a place for you to be nourished. It's the church. It's amongst faithful believers. God knew we couldn't do this on our own. That word nourished means to support or feed. It speaks of personal enlargement or growth and it is a direct reference to spiritual development from being properly fed. Our aim here is that there would be a place, not four walls, not some concrete slabs, but there would be a place where the people of God could be nourished, where the people of God could be fed, where we as the people of God could enjoy the presence of God just as he has designed it to be. Whatever church looks like for you, and I charge you today, whatever church looks like for you, wherever you find yourself, I I need to be honest with you today. Sitting at home watching YouTube is not church. I need to be honest with you today that if you have an infrequent commitment to the household of God, don't blame the household of God that you're malnourished. But I want to charge you today, whatever this looks like for you, wherever you find yourself, please make sure that church equals a place where you're fed, cared for, supported, loved and nourished. And here's the other charge, that we would all be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, when we read chapters like this, when we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ, when we understand the enormity of the power that's in the blood of Christ, when, when we understand that you have thrown the accuser down, when we, when we look, Lord, to the hostility around us and we seek refuge and nourishment, all we can say is, Father, we need you. Jesus, we say thank you this morning.
Father, I pray that each and every one of us here would know your presence. I, I pray that each and every one of us would be fed, nourished. That, Lord, each and every one of us would occupy the place that you have prepared for us. Father, I thank you that we don't live to obtain the victory, but we live to enforce your victory. I pray that you would use us to extend your kingdom. I pray that you would use us to proclaim the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would use us, Lord God, to be light and to be salt. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.